0: Hey guys, it's Mike here, and before we begin this episode where Brian and I sit down with filmmaker Jim Hemphill, there is one big thing that I want to address quickly. I want to apologize for some of the sound quality throughout this episode. So due to unforeseen difficulties with Skype connection and horrible cell service on our end, we had to do an impromptu kind of jury rig to record this episode. So, throughout the episode, it's going to sound like we recorded the episode outside in the wilderness, and that's because we partly had to. So, I mentioned earlier that Brian and I's cell service is not very good in our home, so we actually had to go outside, because for some reason, that's the only way that we can actually get phone calls. And so, it's because of this, sitting outside, you guys are going to hear some wind chimes, crickets... And I think the quality sounds like we really did record on a speakerphone, which we ultimately did. And I hope you guys can forgive us for this, but I hope you all still find enjoyment in the episode. For the conversation we had with Jim was once in a lifetime and and just very awe-inspiring, in my opinion. You can find Jim on Twitter at Jim Hempill, as well as his website, www.jimhempillfilms.com. His films, bad reputation, and the trouble with the truth are available on Amazon Prime Video. Once again, we apologize for some of the quality, the sound quality of this episode, but without further ado, our conversation with Jim Hempill. <music> the amateur all tours the podcast where every week we sit down and have a discussion about a movie i'm your host mike and joining me is my brother brian and we would like to welcome you to amateur all tours all right welcome to the show i'm your host mike and joining me as always hey guys brian and we have another guest for the show and it's it's something that I'm really looking forward to having this conversation. Just, again, super excited. And uh, our guest is Jim Hemphill, a filmmaker, acclaimed filmmaker. And Jim, why don't you uh, give an introduction to yourself?
1: Uh, yeah, hi, I'm Jim Hemphill. I'm a filmmaker, and I guess I would describe myself as film enthusiast. Uh, I write about movies, I make movies, I moderate Q&As and screenings in Los Angeles, and uh, just uh, all around life movies.
0: Yeah, and I've actually... So, my introduction to you was actually through Dana Buckler of How's This Movie. Uh, I short, Long story short, I reached out to him to come on the show, and we had a long conversation. I think it was like two and a half hours about his journey and everything film, and your name came up because the film we were talking about was Phantom Thread, and he said, oh, I know this guy who... Is the aficionado of Paul Thomas Anderson, and I'm gonna put, uh, hook you up with him, and that's kind of what created the the line of dialogue between the two of us, and you know, getting and me reaching out to you or Dana establishing that connection, and then, you know, getting you on the show, which you agree to, which I want to say thank you for coming on and helping out some amateur podcasters, and because it's it's something that Brian and I don't really have these conversations that much, especially with filmmakers yeah it's basically no, believe
1: me, i'm I'm grateful to have the opportunity i'm uh, I'm always first of all I always enjoy talking movies with anybody who likes movies and then I'm also uh, I am eternally grateful for anyone who is at all interested in my movies it's so hard to get you know right right now it's as everybody I'm sure knows it's you know easier to make movies now than it's ever been but it's harder to get them noticed because there's just so much stuff out there and so i'm uh, I think the whole whole world of you know, podcasters and and people writing about and talking about movies and everything. I mean, it's really the only way for independent filmmakers to kind of get their stuff talked about and and seen, because everything else, you know, we don't have uh, multi-million dollar marketing budgets to to get our stuff uh, noticed above the gazillions of other movies that are out there.
0: Yeah, and and it's definitely this is this is definitely uh, something that I was very excited to because even with my own experiences, all through you know via proxy of Mike and um, I, I you you kind of, your name started floating around when we were talking about the show, and um, Mike said you should definitely check out his stuff; it's really good. And um, yeah, as of today, I've I've listened to um, your conversation with Dana. Um, I think like one of the first ones, like the first uh, starting interview. And that was definitely interesting because I just actually saw Trouble with the Truth, and I think it is a fantastic film. And I just, I, and I'm definitely excited to talk about that a little bit and uh, just you know start this conversation. Yeah, and that's and that's definitely going to be part of this. Uh, one thing that I'm really interested, you know, Brian and I being amateur filmmakers, and I and I wanted to say like I completely agree. Like finding people to watch, not 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 alone like to watch your films, but also you know, have that dialogue and, and hope people like them, it's, it's it's difficult, because like you said, in this in this age, anyone can make a film, but, and it's it just, and it's, I feel like the market is starting to be, I don't want to say oversaturated, but exposure is getting extremely difficult to have, and we have our own YouTube channel with our own shorts, it's just, you know, it's for fun trying to get the film festivals, or short film festivals, but yeah, I, I definitely want to hear about, and when we get to that part in the journey, about, uh, bad reputation and then trouble with the truth, because those are definitely two things that I definitely want to talk about with you. This that process, Mike. You were saying it's it's hard to you know get the exposure out there for uh, your film in general, but it's one thing to actually make a good movie and then get that good movie out there, which is the case with the Trouble with the Truth. So, well, and also bad reputation. But I, I we we both you know have similar opinions. Yeah. So. I think let's just get right into the conversation. So, Jim, I, I think we should start right at the beginning. And and so I, I, I kind of know half the story, but I, let's start from right when you were a kid. Because I think for listeners that either haven't heard that episode from Dana or new listeners or people that are new to you, let's start, like I said, at the very beginning. And I, from what I understand, you have a very, very early exposure to film in a very interesting and unique way.
1: Yeah, I mean, I was obsessed with movies, you know, I'm I'm, like many filmmakers, you know, I'm one of those people who was a movie nut from a very young age, and in fact, my first memory is of being in a movie theater. The first memory I have is when I was three years old, my parents took me to see the movie Tommy. Um, I guess they just didn't want to pay for a babysitter or something, because I don't know if... uh, if people listening to this are familiar with that movie, but Tommy is a, you know, Ken Russell movie from 1975 uh, with The Who and Tina Turner and uh, Oliver Reed and Anne-Margaret. And it's a it, it completely insane movie. I mean, it's it's like, you've got Anne-Margaret rolling around in a room full of baked beans, and Tina Turner is this, uh, this acid queen. And I mean, I very vividly remember as a kid, as a three-year-old, watching this movie and just being totally mesmerized by it. it. Was In a way, I, I feel like I had the perfect first couple of movies to really hook me, because I saw Tommy, which was a movie for adults, but that was very visually uh, just, you know, out there and inventive, and this, this kind of just visual extravaganza, and and oral with the music of The Who. And then the second movie I saw was more conventional, you know, children's film. I saw the Disney Snow White, which actually traumatized me far more than Tommy did. The, the, the sort of the talking trees or whatever it was in Snow White, I also typically remember being terrified by as a kid. But those two movies together, I saw them both when I was around three years old, and they both kind of hooked me right away. I mean, I, I, from that point on, I just always wanted to go to movies. It was the thing. If I had the choice of what my, um, you know, my entertainment was going to be, it was movies. I never liked or was very good at sports and, uh, you know, or anything like that. So... Uh, And and I I think my affection for movies intensified when I was around 8 years old because, so from 3 to 8, you know, I went to a lot of movies, loved them, Uh, but then when I was 8 years old, I had a younger sister, I was 8, she was 4, and she died of a brain tumor, and when she was in the hospital and my parents were dealing with that and I was dealing with this, you know, losing a sister and all that kind of stuff, the movies then they weren't just my entertainment they were my lifeline like they were my escape from yeah. reality which mm-hmm. i desperately needed at that point and this would have been around the summer of uh, i guess actually i was seven not eight because this would have been the summer of 79 and i mean so i remember i very vividly remember that summer of movie going and then i remember you know seeing moonraker and meatballs and uh I can't remember what the other movies were, the in-laws. Um, but those movies, to me, I mean, they just uh, again that was my that was my escape. So then it really became an addiction. And somewhere in there, you know, when I was a kid, of course, I wanted to be an actor because when you go to the movies as a kid and you don't know anything about how they're made, that's what you see is you see the actors. So and my my two favorite actors were as a kid were Clint Eastwood and Burt Reynolds. So
2: mm-hmm.
1: you know, I wanted to be Clint Eastwood. But what changed was at some point I realized that the Clint Eastwood movies I liked the most were the ones that said directed by Clint Eastwood in the credits. Mm-hmm. And I asked my father, I said, What does the director do? And, and he said, Well, he's the guy who tells the whole story. And somehow when he said that, it just clicked, something clicked inside of me. And so now I no longer wanted to be Clint Eastwood the actor. I wanted to be Clint Eastwood the director. And that was somewhere when I was around 10 years old, I guess, because I remember seeing the movie Bronco Billy, which he directed. And, and I think. There was this kind of uh, moment where a, a few movies that I saw at around the same time all kind of crystallized this idea in me about directing. One was the Clint movie, Bronco Billy. Another one was John Carpenter's Halloween, which, ironically, I discovered in the worst way possible. I mean, I, I saw Halloween on like NBC Panned and Scan with commercials huh. with all the R-rated stuff cut out of it. Yeah, the, the I, I filtered version, to, yeah. Yeah, I wasn't allowed to go see it in the theater or whatever, so my, my first viewing of it was, I, I recorded it on a Betamax machine off of um, TV, and I watched that tape over and over and over and over again, and it was the most unbelievably crappy version of Halloween mm-hmm. you can imagine. And yet, somehow, the greatness of that movie, there's something about Carpenter's voice that still came through in that bad version, and and I... and. I really started, I really felt the way that movie was working on me, and without exactly knowing what a director did, I just kind of sensed there was something about that movie and the way that guy made that movie that was really effective, and then also around this time, I saw The Shining, and The Shining I did see uncut and all that, and and I had also read the book, I read the book The Shining, the summer between 5th and 6th grade, and then I saw the movie. And I think that was probably the single greatest early education in what a filmmaker did, because Stanley Kubrick's The Shining was so different from Stephen King's The Shining, and I loved both, but I think that was the first thing where I really started to understand, this is what a story filtered through a director's point of view is. Uh, Seeing Stephen King filtered through the way Kubrick sees the world and the way Kubrick shoots it and casts it and everything else. So all those things together, Kubrick, Carpenter, Eastwood, you know, and that, I mean, it's just like this sort of convergence of personal experience with discovering these movies at the right time. And from that point on, it was pretty much off to the races. And, you know, for the subsequent 30, 40 years, I've lived in three nothing but movies.
0: Yeah, and i the one thing that I, I, I definitely want to say, and... It, it, I just wanted to comment, well, first off, I, I'm, I'm sorry to hear about your sister, and that, when you said that, Brian and I looked at each other, and like, wow, because I, I remember, I don't think that was mentioned in your conversation with Dana, and when you said that, that movies were no longer, you know, just in t- entertainment, they were now an escape, and, and like a vital escape at that, especially at such a young age, and such, and something, an event that was so yet traumatic and as powerful something like that and to me that that kind of speaks volumes as to like as as like the movies and and your appreciation for movies and and, and to me i think you know knowing what i do about you and, and seeing your films a lot there's a lot more connecting fibers for me between i can see these connections and just like how much movies mean to you and it's also it's i'm, I'm seeing some parallels between you know my life and and Brian, like our lives combined, you know, you, you mentioned with Stephen King and, 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 well, Stephen King in himself is a very adult author and, and, but Stephen King was the first and longtime listeners of the show know this, that Stephen King was Brian and I's first foray into like adult themes and adult literature and adult cinema. And I mean, ours was it, but I have read *The Shining* as well, and that's also another dense book. So it's it's very interesting that you not only read *The Shining*, understood it, and then saw *The Shining* the film and understood that the director, especially Kubrick, had changed all of that. And and then you internalized that and said, and, and you processed it, and said, yeah, this there's like this there's this uh, this is what the director does. And I think that. I'm giving props to you for that, because I think as a 10-year-old, I may have tried reading Stephen King, but I definitely wasn't making those assertions and those things. But
1: Well, and I should admit, I, I don't know that I, I... I wouldn't say I fully understood either the book or the movie, but it was more of a sense. I think it was more of a kind of emotional sense I had. I don't know that I... I, I certainly, looking back, I can't imagine how I possibly could have <laughs> understood a lot of the stuff in the book or the movie. But but it was just, yeah, it was just a sort of sense. And I, I found that, you know, Stephen King, that's a very... He's a very common gateway uh, for people in terms of, like you say, uh, the sort of gateway to adult entertainment or adult, you know, uh, art or whatever. Um, and I'm not sure—I'm uh, not 100 percent sure why that is, but but it certainly is, is something I, uh, you know, I've found among a lot of people. And it's interesting to me this new phase that we're going, heading into, where Stephen King is kind of becoming a big source for big movies again with it and things like that. Because when I was a kid, I mean, you know, it was like the top auteurs were making Stephen King movies. It was, you know, Brian De Palma and Harry, Cronenberg and The Dead Zone, John Carpenter and Christine, and Kubrick and The Shining, you know. And then it got to this period where, for whatever reason, he kind of thought a of fashion with, in terms of movies, and it was like they were just making a lot of TV stuff that I, I didn't think was quite as... Uh, Strong, even though I enjoyed a lot of it and everything, and now it seems like we're sort of heading back into this. Probably, with, you know, with the success of it, I suspect he's going to become a really big source for big
2: theatrical movies again.
0: Oh yeah, definitely. I, I feel like yeah. Now that you mentioned, I definitely can see the uh, the Stephen King cycle restarting kind of again. Um, I, I guess I had a question based off of Stephen King uh, being the gateway uh, kind of influence in all of our lives. Um I guess it's also coming from the fact that I'm also an, an avid writer and I love writing and it's been kind of a core identity of mine. And for you were you also like when you when you first started this foray into like filmmaking did you see yourself also as someone who could who could write for the movies or was it just solely like from a directing standpoint?
1: No, I definitely saw myself as a writer. I mean probably much more so then than I do now. I mean now I feel like I write uh, only to have stuff to direct. I really don't... <laughs> I, I actually don't enjoy writing, which probably sounds a little bit strange given how much
0: writing... Well, how talented you are yeah, in writing. I was, was going to say... Well,
1: that's, <laughs> that's a kind thing to say. I mean, I always feel like I'm faking it a little as a writer. I mean, I always feel like I... Compared to the writer, both as a screenwriter and as a writer on film, I don't I don't describe myself as a critic because I feel like... I, I
2: feel
1: like... A, now, I'm not a real critic in the sense of I don't know, you know, Roger Ebert or Pauline Kale or somebody like that. I, I I generally only write about movies I like, so I'm sort of I sort of describe myself as more of an enthusiast than a critic. I mean, I used to be a little bit more of a critic, and then once I started making my own movies, I stopped writing about things I didn't like because I knew how absolutely hard it was to make even a bad movie. I just felt like I couldn't I, I, I really felt like I couldn't criticize any Publicly criticize other filmmakers anymore. After I, I made a couple of my own, I really felt like uh, you know I respect anybody who makes any movie. I think it's, it's a lot of work, no matter
0: what. Yeah, I. Um, it's incredible. Yeah, I, 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 love that because one of the things I have with uh, online critics and just critics in general is like you can you can trash a movie all you want, and but on the at the end of the day is like they made a movie and you didn't and. And, and not a lot of critics can... It's like... My opinion is like... If you... And, and you know, we've made short films. Uh, what and mo- Mostly just short narratives. You know, short... Very short crew as in myself or myself and Brian. And that's kind of it. Um, I made a feature-length documentary. So, like, I... to a point, I kind of understand how difficult filmmaking is, but, like, scratching the surface level, but, and I, and that's, like, kind of the same thing with the podcast, is I was looking back, and there's not really a lot of movies that we've reviewed that we didn't like, and, and I, and I think that goes into, like, I don't really like talking about movies that I didn't like, I, I I think film should be celebrated, even if, even if the film isn't, you know, the greatest, they're, they're seeing, there is merit in a lot of different films, whether, like, like, Ed Wood, for example, I mean, his films aren't the greatest, but I can appreciate them, for because he is so passionate, and he just made his movies, whereas a lot of people that, you can sit, like, armchair critics, and sit down and say, oh, this movie, you know, narratively was all over the place, it, was, it just looks like crap, but, you know, I'll give it a 2 out of 10, but then they just sit there, and that's it, it's like, well, you don't know the story, like, like how much, like, blood, sweat, and tears, like, went into making this movie, so I, I really appreciate that, like, what you just said about really only talking about movies you like because you understand what goes behind making a film.
1: Yeah, and it's, um, you know, and, and it's funny that you bring up uh, Ed Wood because, in a, in a, I mean, this is jumping all over the place, but like, like the, Tim Burton's Ed Wood, in a weird way was sort of, in a weird sideways way, was kind of an influence on my movie, The Trouble with the Truth, only in the sense that that movie at Wood, the first time I saw it, it traumatized me because I related so much to that character and it really terrified me, this idea that, because I had sort of gone, up until that point, I had sort of gone through my life thinking, well, my passion for filmmaking will translate to my movies. My movies will because I saw Ed Wood before I made a movie, and I always sort of had this vision, well, my movies will be great, because I love movies so much, and I know so much about movies. And then I see Ed Wood, and it's this movie about a guy who has all the passion and love of movies you could possibly have, and still couldn't make a good movie. He like, didn't
2: really, yeah. have the
1: talent. And that really, the first time I saw that movie, I didn't find it funny at all. It, it actually, like, this error terrified Trump, <laughs> I think. And it, got, and, and I, it really made me it it really made me start thinking about this whole if there's any kind of connection at all between uh, your love of something and your knowledge of something and your talent for it and that sort of plays a little bit into the John Shea character in trouble with the truth and it's something that I always think about because I I really do believe at, to a certain point that the really really great directors the Coppola or Paul Thomas Anderson Or whoever I really do think at some level They're born with it I mean I think you can learn You can always get better And with more work and more passion and energy And all that Your movies are going to be better than they would be otherwise But I also, I really do think I I really, having made a couple movies And tried to write many more And all that kind of thing um, I do feel like I know, I don't have the eye and the mind that Paul Thomas Anderson has. And I and I just don't think, I think I could make a hundred movies, and I don't think I'll ever make one as great as Boogie Nights, or uh, as distinctive in its way as There Will Be Blood. I just think he, somehow he was just touched at birth by, with this gift. And um, so anyway, I, I, I think that was like something about it would that really... Uh, Freaked me out was the revelation that talent. Just because you have the love and the knowledge of something doesn't necessarily mean you have the talent for it. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, getting back around to your original question about my my writing, um, I did as a kid see myself as yeah. I always I always I don't even think I don't even know if I knew the difference between writing and directing. I mean, I think I, I, until much much later, I don't know that I really. Um, I think I just I think I just wanted to be a storyteller on film, and so you know, as a kid, I, I, I wrote stories. I mean, they were like a page long and they felt like novels to me. And then, uh, I had a, you know, before even my family had a video camera, we had a super eight camera and I would make super eight ripoffs basically of the movies I liked. So we would make super eight ripoffs of Rambo or Indiana Jones or swamp thing. And, and they were all shot in my backyard, you know, and, uh, and I, re- I remember making a sequel to Forty Eight Hours called Forty Eight Hours More, um, <laughs> which is it only you know I guess I, I guess only marginally dumber title than the one they actually came up with for the, the sequel they did, but uh, another Forty Eight Hours. But anyway, so yeah, I was uh, I, I was always um, yeah always thought of myself as I'm going to write and direct, and really until I got to film school, I didn't even know you know I didn't I didn't know anything about how, how those jobs were different from each other. Um, I didn't know that there was anybody else behind the camera besides one guy. Like, to me, director meant cameraman, cinematographer, whatever, because with the movies I made with my friends, it was just me with a camera and my friends playing in front of it.
0: Huh. Yeah, and, that, and I think... I definitely want to talk about your film school experience, because from what I... Because I, I... Did you, Brian, did you listen to the Dana interview... Okay, so you you know some of the beats, because I remember when I was listening to your story uh, with Dana, I think that was, I think it was 2013, 2014, if, I, if I'm not mistaken, and I remember I was listening in my car, and some of the points you said, I, I like, literally would either gasp or laugh out loud. I was just like, that's awesome. I, did, I, was, I listened to the interview today, and I was like, wow. I am so jealous of the experiences you gotta, you kind of got to uh, you know partake in and, <laughs> and, and and I'll and I'll mention those when we when we come to them. So, let's let's fast forward to your high school cuz I remember you were this is when you started to kind of really start to explore film and really understand what the roles were in, in just in just filmmaking in general and this is when you started to, you know, figure out I want to be a director.
2: Yeah, I mean, uh,
1: definitely, I, you know, high school was, uh, I mean, again, it's definitely even, you know, helped for me to differentiate even between, you know, basically, again, once from like 10 to 18, I guess, was just a sort of constant immersion in movies, and when I was in high school, I had an English teacher, a guy named Dave Gatos, who sort of opened my eyes to different kinds of movies, I mean, I think, you know, before I, Like, he taught a class called New Media, and, you know, today, with how uh, overprotective everybody has gotten of kids and stuff, he'd probably probably be fired for teaching this class because he was showing us, like, Sam Peckinpah movies. Oh, wow. (laughs) uh, I mean, that was where I discovered The Wild Bunch, was in a high school.
0: Oh, you watched that in high school? Hmm. Yeah.
1: (laughs) Yeah, so we watched, watched, you know, that was a lot of, um, that was probably a class where I started to think about film more serious you know before that probably uh, you know my favorite movie was probably Easy Money with Rodney Dangerfield or something. I mean that was like the class where I started to really really get it as an art form and where we where I discovered Sam Peck and Bond, discovered Bonnie and Clyde and uh, a lot of the you know a lot of the classics that are kind of obvious now that was like a Psycho things like that we watched and um, and he really he, there was and he sort of opened me up to the fact that there was this world of movies beyond what I was going to at the local multiplex. I grew up in a suburb of Chicago called Naperville, and he kind of turned me on to, you know, Chicago, when I was a kid, was just a great city for film criticism. I mean, you had Siskel and Ebert, who were the popular guys, but then you had a great critic named Dave Kerr, who was writing for the Chicago Leader. Uh, later, you had a guy, Jonathan Rosenbaum, writing for the Chicago Reader, who was fantastic. Um had all these really, really strong film writers in Chicago in the 80s, and this teacher of mine kind of turned me on to their writing and on to the movies that you had to go into the city to see, things like Kurosawa's Ron, or uh, there was, again, Ken Russell there, The White Worm, things like that, and so, you know, I, th- I think my mind just kind of kept expanding and opening, hopefully it still is to this day, but... I was so into movies that I was a terrible student in high school. Like I wasn't. My fantasy was to go to USC, go to film school there, because that's where John Carpenter went. John Carpenter was my my idol, and, um, but there was no way in hell I was going to get into USC uh, coming from high school, because like, my grades just weren't good enough, so I ended up go somewhere, the same English teacher uh, turned me on to this place, Columbia College in Chicago. Go to as an undergrad, which was a film, sc- a really good film school that you didn't have to have great grades to get you into. Know, basically, anybody could go there kind of an open admission policy. And um, that was where I, that was win, and that was, you know, again, kind of exponentially opened my eyes to more movies and to making movies on a more serious level. I mean, that's sort of, I think, what you know. Nowadays, it's very you know, really different. Now, I went to film school in the, you know, from '89 including grad school, I went to film school from 89 to 95. And, you know, the biggest thing you got from film school in those days was just having access to equipment and, you know, just getting cameras and, and film. I mean, we shot everything on 16 millimeter film in those days. And, you know, now it's a little different because, you, you know, the access is much more open. You can make a, a good movie on, you know, a, a 5B or a consumer video camera or whatever, yeah. you know, back then, you, you, you couldn't do that, so that was a really essential, you know, you know. I don't know if film school is as necessary now as it was, you know, I feel like when I went, it was it was pretty important, but I don't know that that's the same, I don't know if it's the same for filmmakers coming up now. If yeah.
0: Like- yeah, and, I mean, like you said, like, now you could literally make a film on anything, like, uh, you know, films that come into mind, shot on an iPhone, Tangerine, excellent film, and uh, Unsane, which was... Okay, but that's I think it's an okay movie more on like a narrative type of thing. But you know, Tangerine, that to me I think was one of like the from my recent memory was one of the first films shot entirely on an on an iPhone, and it looks amazing, and and that and again that just kind of hits now in in the digital filmmaking or in the digital age that you can in in digital filmmaking anyone can make a movie. But, and, and it goes back into and kind of what you were saying about this kind of innate talent that people have, and like, yeah, you can practice it as much as you want, and you could learn about it, but in the end of the day, you have to have talent at, at doing this, or it's just not really, it's going to show that you don't really know what you're doing, and and yeah, I, I and, and that's kind of where my problem was a lot of, when I see a lot of amateur films now, is I feel like a lot of people think cuz they have a camera they they should just shoot something and but they don't really understand and i think studying some aspect of film is good and having formal classes like i know brian you were in a screenwriting class and and a history of film class as well and it was immensely valuable and, and i was in a, a video, video 1 and 2 class where i learned more of like the technical aspects of of, of, of at least digital filmmaking and but biggest thing is learning how to edit learning how to use premiere pro and kind of and having discussions with the film professors and getting feedback of just like all right this is your style here's how you can make it or here's our critiques that hopefully can help push you to do a look like make a, to to hone in on your craft and and so i think like in that aspect Taking f- some sort of film class or screenwriting class, to, to, like to learn, because I mean, you you need to learn. Like, as much as I like to think that some people like that, I think that Kubrick is uh, was born just with that that with that eye for photography. He had to he, he took classes about photography. He went to school for it. Don't get me wrong.
1: You need you need both. You need to be born with it, and you need to to hone it, and you need to be a student to film. And and I know. Again, I, I keep using Paul Thomas Anderson as an example. I mean, I've uh, I've met Paul Thomas Anderson, and interviewed him a couple of times. And I mean, this is a guy who's still—you know—he's got Turner Classic movies on in his house around the clock. I mean, he's still always studying other filmmakers and, and learning. And and, and, I, and I and I think it's a great point you make about how you know you're not a filmmaker just because you pick up a camera, just because you can can, can have a camera. And there is this whole, there's this misconception that people have where it's like you know they say, oh, well, um, Tangerine was shot on an iPhone, or Unsane was shot on an iPhone. It's like, yes, they were, but they were shot by directors who, you know, they didn't just, like, aim those phones in the general direction of the action and see what they could get. I mean, those movies are very planned out, and those phones are very modified. I mean, you know, Tangerine used special lens adapters and all kinds of stuff. He didn't just take the iPhone out of the box.
0: Oh, of you course, know. yeah. Yeah, there's so, you know? so much there's more that goes into of, it. I think
1: some people have this, and, and and there is this there is this philosophy that I think you are correct in being somewhat disparaging of, which is this this philosophy of uh, just shoot, 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 shoot. You know, shoot, should always be shooting, should always be shooting. Well, no, sometimes you should be thinking in between, and you should be thinking about what you're going to shoot and why. And sometimes it's better to make one. Know, interesting movie that has a point of view or or something to say or a, a story or a visual idea or something like that. Than ten half-ass shorts that are just you and your friends goofing off. You know, and I think and I think you're totally right that that as far as you know classes go, it's like you don't necessarily need to go and get a, a degree in film or something like that. But the one thing you still kind of can't get any other way is that feedback that you're going to get from your fellow students and from your teachers and things like that. And look, sometimes you may not agree with them, or sometimes they may, they may they can be wrong. But in testing your ideas and opinions against theirs, it helps you sort of find your voice as a filmmaker. And I think, um, you know, I do think there's a lot of things that were valuable to me in film school, but now there are other ways of getting, I mean, nowadays you've got, you know, filmstruck. It's like this, you know,
2: filmstruck is, as a streaming service, I mean that is film school on uh,
0: Roku. I agree. You know, it's yeah,
1: unbelievable the stuff that is on there. Like, just not the movies and the supplements and the visual essays and you know the commentaries. I mean that thing. You know, the idea that for ten bucks a month you can have access to the stuff you have access to on there is is amazing. And like when I was in film school, again, you almost had to be in film school to see that stuff because it wasn't out on video. And you know we you know we were watching prints of those movies on 16 or 35 or whatever. And now you can get them on your iPad. Um, but, but yeah, I, 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 education of some sort, whether you're getting it that way or you're getting it from teachers or whatever, you know, because if, if all you're doing, I think there's this whole generation of filmmakers now. Um, you know, again, there's a lot of great filmmakers doing really interesting stuff with iPhones and... on. Uh, you know YouTube and all that kind of stuff, but then there's also there are, there are there's there's a sort of generation of filmmakers and, and and usually I find it more with like sort of actors who think they have to generate their own material or whatever, who just uh, there's again there's no real sense of craft behind it. It's just kind of making stuff up as they go along and throwing it out there, and that sort of creates this Gresham's law of independent film, where. Speaking to your point, at the beginning of this conversation, it becomes much, it becomes harder for everybody to get their film seen, not just seen, but to even have people know you exist. I mean, and, and I, look, I made a movie, I, I had an edge above a lot of people. I mean, I had a couple, you know, I had, I had a couple actors in my movie, In Trouble with the Truth, who were somewhat, you know, known to people. And yet, that still doesn't mean people know it's out there or, or I mean, I, I have people who are, I'm. Been, I, you know, I have friends of mine who still don't realize I made a movie with Leah Thompson. Oh. You know,
2: I'll run,
1: in, I'll run into them and they'll be like, well, "What have you been up to the last few years?" And, you know, I say I made this movie. Like, they have no idea it exists because it's so hard to get noticed because there you know, is just such a glut of stuff out there. And I'm all for more movies um, and more. You know, I love the fact that there's so much stuff out there and you have so many choices and it's, it's to watch and it's it's great. But it, there is this sort of downside where. Um, just the sheer volume of content, and sometimes it makes it tough for everybody, good, bad, and in between, to, to get noticed. If you are not making Marvel movies,
0: yeah, oh yeah, that's that's definitely true. I, I now I, I want to talk about your experience at film school specifically about, and I feel like this this started to kind of get your. Um, your attention going with, because um, I have act- I've read some of your work and your most recent one I saw you posted you interviewed Joaquin Phoenix and Gus Van Sant, which about their new fi- about the new film and collaboration and I uh, I was reading and I was like wow this is really interesting and it's it's and you mentioned you interviewed Paul Thomas Anderson and and we didn't mention this but you and hopefully you can elaborate on this story as well but you had interviewed Walter Hill and. And that that and that was one of my moments where when I was listening to your interview with Dana that I had my gasp and just la- like my laugh out loud moment of that's awesome like I can't believe that just that you and, and uh, so tell us about that story and how that um and how that that encounter had occurred.
1: Well, while I was at Columbia College as an undergrad, I sort of had this shift for for a while, and, and it sort of led to this schizophrenic existence I've led ever since where I'm part filmmaker and part kind of film enthusiast and writer on film you know while I was at Columbia I started uh, writing reviews of movies and got a couple of them published and started to think you know maybe I'm going to be a film critic and not a filmmaker and so I applied to USC to go to grad school not as a not in the filmmaking program but in the critical studies program and I got accepted and so, so I did finally make it to USC, as I'd always dreamed, but I came out to L.A. to go to USC as a critical studies major. And we, the, the first review I ever published, I think, was when I was in Chicago, was a review of Walter Hill's movie, Trespass. And so when I got to L.A., not long after I moved here, I was walking up and down Hollywood Boulevard, and there's this bookstore called Larry Edmonds Bookshop, great movie bookstore. And I went in there, and they had this thing called the Hollywood Creative Directory. I don't think it exists anymore because now all this stuff is online. But anyway, the Hollywood Creative Directory was just a book that had addresses and phone numbers for all these production companies in Hollywood. And I started flipping through it, and there was a. uh, And Walter Hill's production company was in there. And it had like an address and a phone number. So I copied his address out of the book, went home, wrote him a fan letter, Uh, because again, along with Carpenter, he was one of the guys who really. Especially 48 Hours and Streets of Fire were really big movies for me. So, uh, so I got home. I wrote a fan letter to Walter Hill, and enclosed a copy of the trespass review I had written, and just kind of said, "You know, Walter, you're my hero." Uh, blah blah blah. You know, I'd love to meet you. Put it in the mail, and not that long after, like maybe a week later, I get this phone call from his assistant. She calls. And she says, "Hi, Jim. This is Carol from Walter Hill's office." Walter read your letter and your review, and he was really impressed with it. And he'd like to meet with you. He'd like to take you to lunch. So, uh, so I had lunch with Walter Hill, and sort of, you know, and struck up this uh, this friendship. He was he was finishing a movie called Geronimo at the time, and, and uh, I remember going to see a screening of that um, on like the studio lot that Robert Duvall was at. And all this kind of crazy stuff, and so I started hanging out on Walter's set. Uh, Because after Geronimo, he did a movie with um, Jeff Bridges, a western called Wild Bill, and I spent a lot of time on just hanging out on that set. And so I I was hanging around Walter Hill a lot, and then I also, while I was at USC, another one of my heroes was John Landis, and I wrote a paper on a John Landis movie, Innocent Blood, for a horror class I took to USC. And I figured, well, hey, this works with Walter Hill, so I, I sent a fan letter to John Landis with a copy, with this, Paper I wrote. And I got, I heard back from him like immediately, like literally the day after I sent it, I got a letter from him saying that he was amazed, he was thrilled to hear that there was a horror class at USC and amazed that Innocent support would be one of the movies studied. And he was finishing up Beverly Hills Cop 3, and he said, if you want to come visit the set, call my office. So of course I did. And then that night, in the middle of the night, I found myself on the back lot at Universal Studios watching. John Landis blow up a truck from uh, <laughs> wow. Got Three. So the point of all this is, I got to spend a little bit of time on these sets with Landis and Hill, and suddenly went back to the idea of being a filmmaker again, because this looked a lot more fun uh, making movies and writing about them. So it was this kind of weird thing where while I was an undergrad at Columbia studying the technical side of filmmaking, I was working as a critic. And then I came to USC, and I'm studying to be a critic, but really what I want to do is be a filmmaker. And it kind of set me off on this weird path that I've been on ever since, where I go sort of back and forth between the two. And I've only recently really started to reconcile the idea in my mind that they're two parts of the same continuum. I, I, I actually, up until fairly recently, I've always resisted in a weird way my film historian and journalist side thinking, it's like pulling me away from filmmaking, which is what I really want to do. And and only in recent years have I kind of realized it's all part of the same thing and I should embrace it and that it's just, you know, it's just who I am. And if it means I make fewer movies because I'm always writing about them, well, so be it. That's that's just, you you cannot, you cannot fight who you are.
0: Huh. And did you ever think, like, especially with those meetings, like one day I'm going to be having panels with 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 all these you know uh filmmakers and 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 um and actors and and um and and work and even working with with uh some very great actors especially you know Leah Thompson I mean all I I can say about her is that you know ever since I'd seen Back to the Future I had a little bit of a crush on her and and it's just—did you, you ever imagine that one day, like, when, like the first time you saw *Back to the Future*, when you saw Lorraine come on the screen, were you like, "She's gonna be in one of—and she's gonna be in one of the films I make"?
1: Uh, that, yeah, no. I mean, and in fact, for me, uh, it goes a little even earlier than that. I, I very distinctly remember the first time I ever saw Leah Thompson in the movie because it was all the right moves. And um, I remember seeing that movie as a kid with my grandmother, sitting next to my grandma <laughs> watching, <laughs> le- watching Leah... Uh, get fingered by Tom Cruise in a, in a car. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, so that was that was my first uh, memory of we of the movie, and it was a pretty uh, visceral, powerful one. So, oh, yeah. Uh, so I definitely did not have that. Uh, yeah, no. It's, I have to say, well, and again, this is the thing um, that no. I mean, I've I have. Like, my filmmaking, here's the thing, in in weird ways, my life up to this point has been both more and less than I would have dreamed as a young film fan. On the one hand, I think I was fairly naive about how movies actually work, how hard it is to get movies made, and also the movie industry has changed a lot. Um, And so I probably you know, I probably envisioned a much grander filmmaking career for myself than I've had. I mean, I think I probably envisioned myself as like being somebody like John Carpenter or Joe Dante or somebody who's making big studio movies all the time that everybody was going to see and all that, and that hasn't happened. But uh, but, the, but I also, in my wildest dream, I could not have imagined that I would be, you know, interviewing Oliver Stone and Martin Scorsese and Al Pacino and, and all these people who I grew up, Worshipping and 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 I've I've got I've kind of gotten to a point now where between writing about films and then I I moderate these Q and A's out here in L A at a place called the American Cinematheque and between those things I mean I've I've you know I've gotten to talk to more of the people who I admire as filmmakers than not I mean now it's like actually the list it's easier to list the ones that I haven't gotten to talk to and it, and and the list. And, the, and, it, and it keeps that list keeps getting smaller. I mean, one of my big heroes who I hadn't talked to up to now is Steven Soderbergh, and I just found out today I'm going to get to interview him on Wednesday. That's
2: oh, awesome. Wow. That's uh, awesome.
1: You know, and so if you, if you had told me when I was a film student, you know, I remember right before I started film school in 1989, you know, I started in September of 89, and I remember a month before I started film school that summer seeing Sex, Lives and Video dates. And it had a huge impact on me, you know, going into film school. Was, okay, and, you know, it was like the kind of movie I would possibly want to make. And I'm sure that you can probably, if I say that, you can see the influence on something like uh, Trouble with the Truth. And if you would have told me, you know, the idea when I saw that movie, like now on, on Wednesday, I'm actually interviewing him about Sex, Lies and Videotape because there's a new Criterion edition of it. and I'm like yeah. interviewing him about the restoration and all that kind of stuff. I mean, that's crazy. So in that way, like my wildest dreams just have been, you know, I mean and, and another movie that was really huge for me, uh, as when I was in high school was Bull Durham. I mean, Bull Durham was probably my favorite movie. And that you know, I am now really, really good friends with the writer and director of that movie, Ron Shelton. And I mean, if you would have told me in high school one of your best friends in the film business <laughs> and you moved to LA is gonna be Ron Shelton, I mean I would have thought you were insane. Yeah. So you know, so that, in um, that way, yeah, it's completely surpassed it. I mean, I probably, again, I think in terms of filmmaking, I probably had, like, really grandiose fans. That's why I thought I was, you know, going to be making movies with all kinds of huge uh, movie stars and stuff. But it is uh, it is cool to have made a movie with John and Leah, because, you know, yeah, Leah, I mean, I certainly saw a lot of formative, you know, she's a lot of the formative movies of my youth, and then. John Shea, the male lead in that movie, was in a movie called Missing, that as a, was another one of my favorite movies as a kid that I used to watch all the time. So it was very surreal, definitely, um, the first day on set of that movie, uh, you know, and, and, and somewhat intimidating in a way. You know, I think I had to get over this idea, like with Leah Thompson, that I'm directing somebody who's been directed by, like, Robert Zemeckis and John Milius and all these people. You know, and I'm sort of thinking, God, what am I gonna? You know, am I gonna look like a little idiot next to these people huh. teams, uh, she's worked with? That was a little bit. Uh, that was slightly intimidating, but I just had to make myself get over
0: it. Yeah, it's and it and it's also it's it's not only you're gonna be directing her, but she's also like, from what I understand, really pushing for this movie to be made and, and, you know, reaching out and, and from, and from listening to your interviews and and understand, from my understanding, like really reaching out to John Shea and saying, hey, like this film is something that I'm interested in. And, and little, like, I didn't realize that she was really a big proponent of, of pushing for independent films to be made. And even as going as so far as, you know, reading your script, loving it and agreeing to be in it.
2: Yeah,
1: I mean she really you know, look, there'd be no movie if there wasn't if it wasn't for her. I mean, she uh and yeah, she did talk John Shea into doing it and found him and, and she was even, she was even more instrumental, I would say, in the post production process. Once the movie was done, um, you know, she really stayed committed to it, thankfully, because again, it's so hard to get these movies seen and um uh, you know the, the sort of running joke was that when I when I first asked her to be in the movie you know I said to her look I can't you know I can't pay you a lot of money and all that stuff but you will it'll only be a couple weeks of your life and then it's done uh, you know and then two three years later I'd be you know calling her hey Leah will you come to the little rock film festival with me to help uh, promote trouble the truth I mean it was kind of ended up this thing that I told her would only be two weeks of her life ended up being a never-ending process huh. of promoting it, getting it out of the world, but I, uh, but I got very lucky that, you know, she likes the movie, and I think, um, you know, that movie was very strategic in a way on my part, in that I, I, I sort of wrote that part, I didn't necessarily write it, I didn't actually write it for Leah, I mean, I actually wrote it for another actress who
2: uh,
1: who I know, um, Lolita Davidovich, who's married to Ron Shelton, and I kind, of, I kind of wrote it with her in mind. And she didn't want to do it, so um,
2: her
0: loss. <laughs> but,
1: but it was, but it was very. I mean, it worked out. Well, it worked out great. I think. I, I think. You know, it, it's, if, if there's one thing I've learned with you know making movies, it's that you have to be sort of open to the movie going where it's going to go, and it'll be the right. If you're lucky, it'll turn out the right way. It should. You know, it should turn out. And I think ultimately, like now, you know, Leah was the right person to, to be in that movie, but she. But I think when I wrote it, the idea was, you know, to write something, you know, my first movie, Bad Reputation, I, I'm very fond of, but I, I think the biggest limitation with that movie is that it was a movie I made for like, you know, a few thousand bucks, and I wrote it as though it was a $4 million house or screen gem. Uh-huh. So, so I was always straining against my resources with Bad Reputation, I just didn't have the money or, you know, I didn't have the resources to, to make that movie uh, the way it, sh- it needed to be made for it to really work. And I think, so Trouble the Truth, I was very strategic. Where I was like, okay, what can you do if you don't have that much money and still have a really good movie? It's like, for the two things that don't cost anything are good writing and good acting. You know, it doesn't necessarily cost you more to have those things. I mean, it costs you more to have a big star, but, um, but it doesn't, you know, there's nothing, there's nothing physically expensive about those two things. So I sort of intentionally wrote it with, you know, very geared towards actors, with the idea being that, you know, I would just write a movie that was so focused on the actors that hopefully I would get a couple of people who would want to do it um, because of the opportunity it would give them. And I think in Leah's case, you know, at that point in her career, she is kind of seen as like a light comedian, because things like Back to the Future, the City, or whatever. And she hadn't necessarily gotten a chance to do, to really sink her teeth into a really uh, rich, dramatic role, and that was kind of the opportunity the movie gave her, and, and so that ended up being lucky for me, because I think she wanted to show that movie off as badly as I did, and um, and nobody cares about me in terms of uh, film festivals, and you know, like, like, film festivals don't care if I'm walking on the red carpet, but they but they want to have Leah Thompson on the red carpet, so it, you know, it wasn't a long, long-winded way of saying that, yes, she was extremely, extremely helpful. And, um, you know, and I think that's a key thing when you're directing independent films. Whether your actors are stars or not, um, the more you can make them your allies and the more you can kind of uh, make them your partners in the movie so that they feel as invested in it as you are. Uh, the better and the more helpful it's going to be, especially nowadays, because you will probably, if you put these, you know, if you make a little independent movie and you're putting it to festivals or you just put it online yourself or whatever, uh, the main way you're going to be able to get the word out about it if you don't have money is on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and all that kind of stuff. So the more uh, you know, your actors feel like they're equal partners with you in that, then the more you can get them to kind of try to spread the word among their followers and their friends and all that kind of stuff, and hopefully. You get
0: yeah and and, and just a comment like I mean you said, oh, when I was when I was a kid, I thought I'd be you know making I'd be drawing crowds and, and you know having these big stars. And you know, I mean, it only takes one. and I mean in the like I always think of Tarantino, it only takes one. and I think you have a lot of potential to have you know that one film that just that just launches you there, man. and and I think now that we're talking about uh, trouble with the truth, I, I think this is something that Brian and I really wanted to get into. Um, I know Brian seeing it most recently than than me. I think I had seen it right when uh, Dana made that introduction. I I watched it right away. But Brian, you you said you watched it. I saw it uh, about two days ago. Okay, so and then I listened to the interview this morning. Okay, so so I think Brian has you know the more he he might have a more things to say. But we're also it, coming but. at it from different perspectives. Like, you're coming at it from, I guess, like a filmmaker, but I'm approaching it more of, like, as a writer. Yeah, and that's and that's, and that's that's how kind of Brian and I we think about things. I'm, I'm a very I mean, yes, I, I understand, like, a story is very important, but I'm a very visual person and a very visual you know, filmmaker, and that, I think that reflects in my work. And, and that's just because I don't think storytelling is my strongest suit but i recognize that and i'm trying to work on it but i embrace that but i'm definitely brian... the writer like you oh, you're like the yin yes. to the yang like you're you're the actual like camera i'm the writer yeah um, and, and, so... and that's always like what my interest has been actually so so right now I, I i let's talk about your film and and brian you you had some great points about trouble with the truth that i think should be heard yeah so, well where should we start with this uh just where do you want to start well I, don't, well, I mean, I guess, I guess it's really interesting that um, Jim, you were saying how you you kind of hate writing, um, or uh, because it, I, like we were saying before, this is incredibly well written, and even it's just as coming at it from my perspective as a writer, I, I mean, I guess you're you're definitely more um, you know experienced in this field like than I am. I'm just I'm only twenty two, but. I-, I couldn't even think about writing, you know, a feature film like this. Uh, from what I was gathering, it was more of a... Like, it was like I was watching a play, you know? Um, did you... When you were writing, did you kind of set it out? Like, I know you were saying in the interview with Dana a few years ago that I think you, you wanted it to be, you know, good actors and, like, kind of limit it to, you know, one or two locations. Just like, Was that for... To make it easier to film, or was that yeah, more... I mean,
1: that was, again, going back to that. I didn't want... I, well, I, didn't, I really... I did ways, I. Like Bad Reputation, in some ways I like it more than I like *Trouble with the Truth* uh, in the sense that I, I like the the fearlessness of it, you know, and I like the sort of outrageousness of it. You know, *Trouble with the Truth* is a much quote unquote classier film, and and I don't know that that's necessarily. A, no, it's not a positive or negative. It's just they're, they're just different movies. But the thing I did want to do in *Trouble with the Truth* that was different from *Bad Reputation* is I just I wanted to make something that looked professional, that looked like a real movie, you know, and um, and again, I think knowing that I wasn't necessarily going to have a lot of money and a lot of time, like, well, okay, how can you make something that's professional looking when you don't have a ton of money and time, and there are a couple ways of doing that, one is not having any exteriors, so that you're not at the mercy of bad weather or permits or things like that, um, and another thing is making it very dialogue-driven and actor-driven, and... Uh, you know, speaking of the point about writing, like, I, I, I think *Troll of the Truth was a movie that, it played to my strengths as a writer, like, I don't think I'm a great plotter, I'm not, I'm not real great with plot, I'm not great, and I'm not necessarily somebody who's gonna come up with really original ideas conceptually, you know, it's like, I'm not the
2: guy who's gonna come up with Blade Runner, or something, <laughs> Yeah. Um, But I think what I do have a strength
1: for is just behavior and dialogue, and that's kind of all that movie was. And and, and once I figured out, it just sort of needed an, an engine, it needed like a thing to thrust it forward, and I figured out that the engine was just this question, will they or won't they? Will these two people get back together by the end of the movie or not? And as long as that kind of was the thing that was waiting at the end, that question, it kind of just drove everything forward. And that was actually a really easy movie to write for that reason. Like, I generally find writing very difficult. But that one I wrote pretty fast. Um, Again, because it was limited. I think the thing that paralyzes me when I'm writing usually is the option. It's that there's always so many different ways a story can go. There's so many different ways. You know, even if you're limiting yourself to a certain genre, where there are a million different kinds of westerns, there are a million different kinds of horror movies, there are a million different kinds of sci-fi, whatever, so it's, there are always so many choices you have to make, and with, with the truth, I mean, I kind of li- purposefully limited my choices from the get-go, and that made it, uh, write a lot, a lot easier than I think, uh, is usually the case.
0: Yeah, and one of the things, like, again, it's definitely, like you said, I want this to, uh, you know, focus on the, on a character drama, and really focus more on the writing, and, like, those th- when i was watching the movie i i kind of i was telling this to brian after we both after he had finished it and i was kind of equating it like this might sound a little weird but like just just let's go, let's go with it for a second i i was saying it, it was like a comedian and yes there were like those funny moments yes but more of the fact that when you're watching a comedian their flow through their material those, yeah yeah, yeah they're well yeah their beats and yeah like in the beats of of the material yeah, it just it it just seemed very a naturalistic flow. I always felt like it was real conversation. It, like so, when I think of when I when I always think of movies that are kind of have the same premise, I always feel like the characters are are having a forced conversation. You're like people don't talk like this. In this case, I thought like yeah, this is a very real conversation about real problems that people have on a daily basis. And it's a conversation that you know many people don't have about you know people you know divorcees coming together. Like and it's it's so brutally honest with itself, you know, and these two people, and it it fits the motif perfectly. Yeah, and I just and I remember as I was watching this, like uh, whatever wherever I was in the movie, I'm like, how did we get here? And then I would like trace it back. I'm like, yeah, this I, there was this naturalistic flow, very much like I just always how I think of comedians, like they start they they're just their flow through through their material just works very well and i just had the same ideas here and it felt very much like with the cinematography and just very like crisp crisp shots and and very like swift camera movements when they were present just very much felt like i was watching a play with a stage play with just two amazing actors and i just sat back and was just enjoying the experience yeah and like i, I kind of uh, you know, was envisioning this film as something, like, akin to, like, The Sunset Limited or, like, Twelve Angry Men, where it's just, like, it's just, it's a character piece, and it, it but it's funny, because, like, when I see, like, The Sunset Limited, it's like, okay, this is o- very obviously a, you know, like, a stage production, or, there, it's, it, I don't know, it's been a while since I've seen that movie, but I, when I remember seeing it, it was, like, kind of, like, okay, well, this is the beat where they have to talk about this, they have to talk about that. For this film, I remember just being totally engrossed with what they were saying, and I remember, I kind of felt like the the lady in the in the restaurant who, when Robert says, like, oh, she hasn't been talking at all, like, she's just been listening to everything we've been saying, and I'm like, I felt like I was sitting across the table from them, you know, just kind of eavesdropping on the, their little, you know, private moments, and, you know, still being shocked. <laughs> I feel like any restaurant goer would be hearing some of the, the things yeah. they were talking about. And that's and that's why I love, like, the characters of, like you said, brutally honest. I love the, the writing of the character of Robert, but also how John Shay plays him, because what, and Brian and I were talking about this, like, Robert knows, like, he's an asshole, but he knows he's an asshole, and he just kind of embraces that, and that's what, it. like, we don't like, and that's, and I think that's the beauty of, you know, that's when you know you have a good writer, when, and good material, when you can take a character that normally... You, the things he says, you're like, wow, that's kind of. He's like very pompous and very, yeah, and very like, like douchey, but he's also very charismatic, and you actually agree with what he's saying some of the time too. Yeah, and and that, and I just and I just love that portrayal, and he and he never, you know, backs down from what he says. He's very strong in his convictions, and but he's also still compassionate, and and he still has emotion, which I and it's 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 like that that tough demeanor is you know hiding his his actual his emotional side and it, it eventually is let out and leah thompson is that great companion for him and yeah and foil that she's able to bring that side out in him and like i love i love this the line where um they were robert saying oh you, you you know you should marry your best friend because once the once the passion goes that's it and then Oh, Emily, Leah Thompson's character goes. Well, you are my best friend, and like that to me is just so poignant and just it, and a very. It's it's the line that I remember the, uh, amongst many of them, but that was a line that I think really makes me. Inca- I just love these how these characters interact. Yeah, and it's very interesting talking about this interaction. And and Jim, you're saying you're leading up to the question of like, will they? Won't they? And. I, it's funny cuz me and mike we were talking about it briefly we had two different interpretations of the ending and i guess i was more of the uh you know cynical side of how it's kind uh-huh. of a downer uh, uh-huh. well it's not even kind of it is in my at least opinion what, But you, you you were thinking it was the it w- i think it was um the uh, emily's you know second husband and uh and, and they're both fundamentally kind of just unhappy, you know? And and I was thinking the opposite. of was like, you know, like, I mean, there's the moment when they were about to, you know, uh, get back together again. And then uh, Robert's character walks away. And you have that, you know, that emotion-filled scene where he's, you know, he's waiting outside the door. And then she comes back and, and puts back the do not disturb. And she's sitting there kind of, I feel like, just contemplating the entirety of the night, and then the phone rings, and very, very clever, and very deliberate, you don't see who's calling, and a very just, hello, oh, hey, and I, and I guess I'm just more, I mean, I can be a real, like, cynic as well, or not saying the cynic, well, yeah, but I, I was like, oh, this is, like, this is, in my opinion, like, Robert would call and say, oh, hey, that's just, and, like, that's just my opinion, how I got it, but it's great that, you know, you you were able to elicit two different reactions from two different people who love film.
1: Yeah, I mean, I got exact... That's one thing. Whatever, you know, the movie, whatever shortcomings the movie may have, you know, I think it's... The thing that I really... That really worked exactly the way I wanted it to was that ending, because I sort of fantasized about the ending being a kind of Rorschach fest for the audience where people would read their own you know point of view into it and that is what's happening I mean I've heard every possible <laughs> interpretation of that ending you can imagine. I mean the people you know the people that audiences think are on the other end of that phone call are some of them are just insane. I mean it's everybody from from her new husband to Robert to her daughter to the guy who she talks about having to fling with oh, yeah. who, I mean it goes on and on. like any character who is in or mentioned in that movie someone at like a film festival has thought they were on the other end of that phone call and that was kind of what i hoped for i mean i have my own opinion about who it is but i don't mine isn't necessarily any more right than anyone else's i mean i actually think any interpretation of it is is equally valid and and it's it's funny because you know people when the movie's gotten reviewed and things you know people talk about my dinner with andre or the before sunrise movies and those were certainly influences on it but you know the big influence on that ending was John Carpenter's the thing.
0: Oh know? yeah, yeah. yeah. As you mentioned, what it, I yeah.
1: Mind, you know, was like it, that ending, just sort of the sort of open ending, leaving it up to the audience's imagination, and uh, and luckily it seems to have worked. You know, I kind of was worried, and we were even worried when we were shooting it that um, it would be an ending that wouldn't work, that people would just find it a cop out or disappointing, and so we actually shot a bunch of endings. But um, it was always written the way that it is in the final film. But on the set, John Shea was, you know, he said, Well, you know, we're here. Let's, just in case, let's try a few different things, just in case you want him in the editing room. And so we shot all these different variations on it with him not leaving or him coming back or, you know, whatever. we shot a bunch of different ways that we just kind of made it on the spot. Um, and we never used any of them. My, my editor... Uh, was editing the movie while I was shooting like he was putting together an assembly and then the first assembly that he showed me He never bothered trying any of the other endings He just did it as written and it felt like it worked So but but I was always worried that people would not like that ending and I was really pleasantly surprised that it got such a great reaction And it seems like uh, everyone's happy with it. And like you say it kind of has different you could sort of interpret whether or not someone is a romantic or a cynic and even what even different people have different ideas of what's romantic or what's cynical i mean you know i i talked to a woman who thought it was you know a happy ending because the two of them if they had stayed together would have probably it wouldn't have worked and they would have made each other miserable and you know so it just hmm. depends. everybody has their own way of, of looking at it and that's you know and that's great i mean that was sort of what i was was going through.
0: yeah cause I think that's interesting so I remember in the interview you were mentioning when you were writing um, it was like an amalgamation of like a bunch of different relationships coming from you know you said your grandfather was Robert um, even like people who with the pass of uh, like retrospective like boyfriends girlfriends husband wives so I, I feel like it's yeah it's it's a little collection of everyone you know yeah which is, which is the magical thing about it
2: and yeah
1: well it was a big lesson for me because also while I was writing it because it was, there were so many things in it that were either based on me or people I knew or whatever, you know, there was, there was part of me that was thinking, this is so specific and personal to me, is anyone ever going to possibly care about this? Or is this just going to seem like a movie by a guy with his head up his ass? And the lesson was kind of that uh, the more specific you make it in a weird way, it, it somehow it becomes more universal. I can't explain how, but it's. But I always thought about the fact you know, another movie that I had on my mind while I was writing it was Annie Hall. Mm-hmm. And I was always thinking about it as a kid watching Annie Hall. I didn't even understand half the references in that movie, they were so specific, but somehow it didn't matter. And it and it made this again, the specificity of that movie is what made it work and what made it weirdly relatable. And that was kinda of what I was gambling on with this
2: mm-hmm. one.
0: Yeah, and I was and I have I have two more points, just and uh, so one, one thing like talking about the reception is I want to I want to talk about and, and ask you just to describe the experience of of reading Roger Ebert give your film a three and a half out of four stars and just like what is that like to have this this class like this this guy that you had known throughout your your childhood and and like into adulthood and you know his la- his lasting legacy of you know um Critiquing film and just and film in general, and having him in the later years of his life review your film and what what was that like and did that you know was that the moment that you're like wow like and and to me like that that that's one of those things I think that your moment could like could be right around the corner because I mean it's one critic but it's it's Roger Ebert it's the Roger Ebert and and at and that that you know the later years and. What was that like when you finally, when you, when you read that review? What, what was that, f- yeah, what was that feeling? I, 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 it's, something, it's something that I will never experience. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, it was, it was pretty incredible, and it was certainly, you know, look, one, another sort of weird influence on the movie wasn't even so much My Dinner with Andre as much as Siskel and Ebert's review of My Dinner with Andre, because when I was a kid, I watched, the, that was, you know, they they championed that movie for weeks on end and on their show. And I actually, I don't even remember when I finally saw the movie because I couldn't see it right away because it wasn't playing anywhere near where I lived. But they were always talking about it. And and I think, um, you know, Ebert's criticism in a way, or his reviews, they were as influential on me as, as any actual movies growing up in Chicago and meeting him and watching him and all that kind of stuff. So it was certainly great. I mean, I, mean, I will say there's that... <laughs> I think that was one of my fantasies, and it's just the way I think the film industry has changed. I think, I think if you made a movie in the '80s, maybe even the early '90s, and you got a great review from Roger Ebert, it probably would have pretty much like made your career take off. Like, like he, he, there was a point where him and Siskel did have that. They had the capability to both to, to make or break a filmmaker. I mean, I think they. Uh, again, they made My dinner with Andre. And um, there are other movies and, and filmmakers that, you know, I think they're, they have careers, you know, thanks to Siskel and Ebert championing them. Um, and, there, and there are filmmakers who were ruined by them. I mean, you know, the, God, the the movie I Spit on Your Grave, I think, was just, you know, single-handedly destroyed by Siskel and Ebert making it a target. Um, but anyway, I think that has... By the time I made my movie, and by the time Ebert reviewed it, and that that review came out, just a couple months before he died, um, by that point I think no single critic anymore, not even him, had the kind of influence that used to exist back in the days where people like him or Pauline Kael or whatever. I think by that point, the world of the internet has sort of um, watered down criticism to the point, you know that 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 people don't necessarily... They don't necessarily respond to individual critics' voices the same way they used to. And not everyone is reading... You know, it used to be that if you were in the movies, everybody was reading Pauline Kael, or everybody was reading Roger Ebert. Like, there were a handful of people that just anybody... If you were in the movies, Andrew Serres. Like, you were reading what those people said about movies. And I don't think there's anybody like that now. I think it's much more splintered, um, unfortunately, I think now it's more about, you know, this sort of, you know, aggregate score, like what is on Rotten Tomatoes and all that. And I mean, granted, uh, I shouldn't bitch about Rotten Tomatoes because I was very lucky. My movie actually did really well on Rotten Tomatoes. We only got, you know, one negative review, so our tomato meter rate or whatever it is is really high. Um, but I think it's a ridiculous way to evaluate movies, you know, based on this kind of, you know for this percentage. It's like, well, you know, it's like what was the tomato meter rating for 2001 when it first came out? It would have been like,
0: it would have been all forty percent
1: or something. I mean, I mean, every movie Stanley Kubrick ever made when it came out would have hit like a, at best a fifty percent on the tomato meter because it's like every because it's like with sometimes a truly great movie or a great filmmaker, you know, they're always they're a little bit ahead of the curve. So like Kubrick, every time he made a movie, you know, when he made 2001. You know, there are people who said, "Oh, well, it's okay, but it's no Doctor Strange Love. And then when he made Clockwork Orange, they said, eh, it's okay, but it's no 2001." And then Barry Lyndon was, eh, it's all right, but it's no disappointment after Clockwork Orange." I mean, and so on and so on. It's went on every movie he ever made. He never made a he never made a movie after the mid 60s that got great reviews in its time. Um, and so it's like this whole idea of a tomato meter meaning anything is just. Uh, Totally ridiculous. And, and I find the whole idea of film criticism as a kind of consumer advice service ridiculous because I think movies are so subjective and our responses to them are so personal that to, to look at like a, to, to decide what you're going to go see because a movie got a 90% of a tomato meter rate right, you know, rating, or to decide you're not going to go see it because it got a 15% is just ridiculous. I mean, to me, like, you know, I don't read a critic to decide. I mean, sometimes I'll go see a movie, maybe that I wouldn't have gone to see because somebody it'll, will champion. But but really, what I'm reading a critic for is I'm reading them for like their report on what their experience of the movie was like. You know, and what how how it felt to them, what it was filtered through their point of view, and hopefully to maybe if, you know if I see that same movie, my experience of it will somehow be broadened by what they thought of it, whether they liked it more than I did or less than I did or whatever. Um, Anyway, getting way off topic here, but it was a great, it was definitely great. Uh, that that review uh, certainly sustained me through a lot of, <laughs> when the movie, you know, came out, and, you know, we had like the sort of limited theatrical release in New York and LA and Chicago, which it was sort of very, a very handmade theatrical release. You know, I never had an actual distributor. I mean, I, I got the movie into theaters myself. I sort of, you know, uh, I had a relationship with the theater here in, in Los Angeles where I do the Q and A's, and so I got them to the book the movie for a week, and that got us some reviews. That then enabled me to send a DVD to Facets in Chicago and ask them to show it, and they showed it based on the reviews we had gotten, and then that got the Ebert review, and so on and so on. So it was sort of this grassroots theatrical thing, and we never had an audience at any of these screenings that was more than a dozen people. I mean, even when—well, uh, that's not true. We did we did one in L.A. that we. Uh, and John did a Q&A with me for that, you know, we got a decent turnout at. But, but in general, like, not that, you know, it's just, it's just, again, it's hard to get people to come see a movie that they haven't seen plastered on billboards and seen trailers for and commercials for and all that kind of stuff. So, you know, it, but I could sort of, on, on cold winter nights when I was feeling like a failure because nobody was going to see the movie, I mean, believe me, I, I, I shouldn't, I, I hate to admit it, but I, I would often, go online and reread that Roger Ebert review when I needed some, uh, an ego boost or some validation to make it feel like the movie had been
0: worth making. Hey, there's nothing wrong with that. I, if, if I, if, if Roger Ebert, yeah, I would have gotten the most expensive frame and printed that out on, like, on velvet and, and, like, framed it in gold. Like, that would have, that would have been my moment of, like, I made it, mom, but, so, with that, uh, I I have one more question, and I think Brian has one as well, and then we'll uh, put a, a wrap on this episode. And and um, so my my question is, you know, with the success of Trouble with the Truth, and you know, and you're, you're still, you know, your interviews and 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 your and and all of that, like talking to directors and and uh, and actors. What what's next? What can we expect? If if there is something, I mean, you said yeah, you, you were mentioning writing like shorts, so you have stuff the direct. So, what's next? Are we gonna, are we gonna see Jim Hemphill's name on for best original screenplay sometime soon, or?
1: Uh, I don't know if you're gonna see it on best original screenplay, but I am. You know, I'm always, I'm, i definitely, definitely got some ideas for other movies I'd like to make in the near future. And I'm also at the moment, I've, I've, I've kind of gotten sidetracked the last year or so, uh, pursuing jobs in episodic TV directing you know, for a couple of reasons I mean, one is just to you know, put it plainly to pay the bills and
2: pay the rent Uh, because it is, you know, movies
1: it's much there used to be this sort of uh, as Paul Schrader put it the movies used to have a deal with capitalism where if you worked in movies, if you made movies, you were going to be able to make a living, it was kind of a given. that's not so much the case now it's not, you know, I didn't make Dime off of either of the movies I directed, and um, it's it's very tough with independent films. There's a reason why a lot of independent filmmakers also you know have other side things they do, whether it's teaching or whatever. It's it's it's, it's tough because on the one hand, you know, Netflix has really changed the economy of uh, of independent films because you know on the one hand it's great as a consumer, uh, these streaming services like FilmStruck and Netflix, where you can pay ten bucks a month and have access to a gazillion movies. Uh, but it's not so good for the filmmakers because, you know, analog dollars have become digital pennies, basically. It's like you just get, you cannot sell your movies unless you get very lucky. I mean, there's, look, there's, every year there's people who take their movies to Sundance and sell them to Amazon or Netflix or A24 or whoever for millions of dollars. There, there are a few of those people, but, but it's literally like winning the lottery. I mean, to be one of those filmmakers. Uh, you know, for the most part independent filmmakers, you have to make your movies very, very cheap if you want to have any hope of getting your money back for them. Um, and certainly, it's, it's just its really tough to make a profit. So anyway, I mean, my sort of fantasy life is to direct some episodes TV to make my living and then be able to, you know, when I'm in between, be making my little independent films without quite the same pressure, uh, where it's like be-all and end-all. You know, like Trouble with the Truth was a little bit... On the one hand, is again, I, I'm... Relatively a success story. I mean, in the fact that the movie did get great reviews and got a, a very minor theatrical release and all that kind of stuff. And yet, it's still, it, it was a very crushing experience to spend from writing it to making it to getting it out in the world. You know, it was a, something like a five or six, seven year process. And to go through all that and, and, like, have your whole life writing on it and then, well, it comes out and you're not necessarily. Being offered huge movies, and you're not, you know, not that many people are seeing it. Um, I'd like to be in a position where I don't feel like my entire life is writing on a movie every time I make one, and so I'm, so I'm sort of trying to break into episodic TV directing for that reason, and because episodic TV directing just I like the speed of it. You know, you go in and you, you prep for a week, you shoot for a week, you edit for three or four days, and then it's on the air a couple months later, Uh, again as opposed to that five, six, seven year process you're talking about with. A film, so so I'm working on that. I'm working on breaking into SICD, but that's kind of a long process for all kinds of reasons. And then, um, when I'm hoping, hoping to get another movie going. Uh, you know, I've got things I've written. I mean, I wrote a western I'd like to make, although that one will probably be a couple of movies down the line because that one does require a certain amount of money. Um, you know, I kind of like to do uh. I'd like to do an erotic thriller, like something along the lines of like body heat or basic instinct or jagged edge. That might be what I end up doing next. I mean, I like my, my, my downside in a way as a filmmaker is that I like to bounce around between very different kinds of things. And I think sometimes that's hard if you don't brand yourself. I think that can make it a little bit hard for, it, it makes it hard because you start starting from scratch every time. It's like, you know, you're, if, you're, if, if you're trying to get people to give you money to make something and it's different from the things you've done before, that's always a little bit tough. But, you know, uh, I'm always plugging away. And one way or another, I'm hoping hoping that I'll be making another movie uh, by the end of the year. I'm
0: lucky. Oh, well, that's that's awesome to hear. So I guess here comes um, the the final, I guess, classic uh, amateurish podcast or filmmaker question, where is uh, what is your advice for, you know, uh, someone trying to you know, pursue this kind of passion and break into the industry or just, you know, trying to, just trying to get ahead with it? Well, what would you have to say to guys like me and Mike and anyone else?
1: Um, uh, you know, the biggest, I mean, this probably sounds, uh, maybe, maybe it sounds obvious or maybe it doesn't because it, it wasn't obvious to me until I really started doing this. Um, but the main thing I would say is learn to embrace and really enjoy the process. Uh Versus the result. Because the result is so out of your hands and unpredictable. And I mean both the result in terms of what the final product of the movie is. And the result in terms of how it's received by people. Um, I think it's... You really... You know, my advice is, is, is honestly like just try to... Try to only do stuff that you really care about. Because then at least at the end of the day... Like the trouble with the truth, again... Didn't necessarily find a big audience. Didn't necessarily get me other movies yet. You know, or whatever. But... I lo- but I like the movie. I feel like the movie is is mine. Like it's a, it's a it's expressive of who I am and the kinds of movies I like and the kinds of topics I'm interested in. And I made a lot of good friends making that movie with John and Leah and people on the crew. And I think my biggest advice is like make stuff you care about so that at the end of the day, you know, if nothing else, you have that. You have something that means something to you and it's personal and. And, and, and also, um, just just be careful about who you make your movies with. Make your movies with people that you're going to enjoy doing it with. Just Again, enjoy that process. Because if, you know, if you're going to be with trouble with the truth, whether or not that movie ever gets discovered on any kind of level beyond a handful of people who have seen it. You know, Leah and I are lifetime friends. John and I are lifetime friends. My cinematographer and I are lifetime one friend. Um, and that kind of is the sort of benefit of that... Whatever happens with the movie, whether you become the next Steven Spielberg or you never get anybody to watch your movies, if you have a good experience making them and you're proud of them, that's, you know, at least you've got that, that that's a minimum. So I guess, uh, maybe that sounds hokey, but that's really the only advice I have.
0: No, that's that's not hokey at all. It's it's all, I mean, that's kind of what life is, is just, you know, enjoy the journey and that's, and, and you know, being... A collegiate athlete. That was a big component that my coach was always telling us was enjoy the journey because you know once it's over it's over and it and it doesn't matter the end result. It's 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 the memories you make along the way. So it's it's not and and the, and I guess sometimes they say like although it may seem corny it's almost always true. So no, I I think that's it's excellent advice. I was not a collegiate athlete. I was in a frat, but the uh, the same thing still applies. Oh, so okay, whatever, <laughs> Ryan, but yeah. All right. So, well, oh. you
2: know, I was just gonna say I don't.
1: You know, I'm not. In, I'm the least into sports person you'll ever meet. But I do think there's kind of an analogy. I think in a, I think in a way like, uh, you know, the, the analogy between sports and movies. You know, I think that like, like, it's you just you have to have a healthy attitude about that you're not. You know, that you're not always going to be on a winning streak. You know, and that no matter what, it's it's sort of like the, you know, how the greatest. You know, the greatest batter in the world you know, misses more times than he hits. And that's kind of the way the movie business is, too. I mean, I, I don't I don't know anybody... That's the, the thing. You know, I know a lot of... I've gotten to talk to a lot of big directors, a lot of people who, to me, seem like they've got the greatest careers imaginable. Um, and I don't know anybody in movies who doesn't feel like they're failing at least half the time. So, um, so you kind of
2: have to be prepared for that, too, and be prepared to stick, stick through it, through all that.
0: Oh, yeah. But, so... I yeah, I think that's awesome advice for any young filmmaker that is hopefully listening to to this, and and I'm hoping that this inspires someone to you know pursue their their dreams and and chase the goal. But with that, I think that will end this episode. It, it, Jim, it's been an awesome, it's been a pleasure talking with you. I, I've I've learned so much. I, I de- you're such a great you're such an awesome speaker and you're just in the way you, you hold yourself and your, and your stories and, and your experiences it just I, Brian and I were just sitting here just and we just shut up because I just wanted to listen to you talk. So So I just want to say thank you again for coming on the show and, 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 and taking a moment to talk with us.
1: No, oh, well, thanks
0: uh, so much for having me. I really enjoyed it. Oh yeah, so and we and we had a good time too. But on that note, guys, uh, thank you for listening to this episode of Amateur All Tours, and stay tuned for more episodes coming soon. Alright, good night. Thank you for listening to this episode of Amateur All Tours. Cover design was created by Sarah Jacobs. You can find more of her work at her own website, Digital Adventures. The opening theme, Dreams, is composed by Joaquin Carrid. This composition was found using a Creative Commons search. As a small plug, go check out both Sarah and Joaquin's work. They're really great and deserve the attention. If you want to drop us a line, which we full-heartedly support, please feel free to contact us at our email, theamateuraltourspodcast at gmail.com. Remember, that is one word. You can also find us at Twitter at amateuraltourspod. Once again, thank you for supporting the show. Stay tuned for more episodes, and thank you once again.